All right, so Israel in the crossfire. Uh, as I said, uh, the, the goal of the game of football is to acquire real estate, right? Uh, the offense is forcing its way uh, down the field, uh, and it's trying to get all the way down the field, and it wants to acquire the other team's end zone, right? And when, it, when they spike the football, it's like planting the flag in the other team's end zone and, and calling this territory ours. Now, the defense's goal, on the other hand, is to stop that from happening, right? They're trying to protect their territory. They're trying to prevent the offense from acquiring their territory. And so they protect it with big, strong, 300-pound linemen and, and guys who are 250 pounds who can run faster than you can possibly imagine. Uh, and, and so you have this clash that's going on on the battlefield all game long. And most of the game is played in the middle of the field. If you ever watch a football game, it's between the offensive 20 and the defensive 20-yard lines. It's played in the middle of the field because it's hard to advance the ball all the way to the end zone without the defense turning you back. And that's when, when they used, why when they used to play football on grass, you may remember, a long time ago, it was always the middle of the field that was all torn up, right? There was no grass on the middle of the field because that's the place where most of the game was played. Now, this vision of a prophecy that Daniel saw uh, and the angel's explanation of it reminds me a lot of a football game. Uh, it's all about the future kingdoms of the world who are coming, who are fighting over the same territory, which is Israel. Uh, there were, in the north, the Seleucids. That's the orange uh, uh, group up there. Uh, they ruled the northern kingdom, which would become Syria uh, over time. And then there were the Ptolemies, who ruled in the southern kingdom of Egypt. That's the purple uh, that's up there on the map. And so the Seleucids, the Seleucids invaded the Ptolemies. The Ptolemies invaded the Seleucids. The Seleucids invaded the Ptolemies. And back and forth and back and forth they went, each trying to conquer each other. And as they went, uh, making war with each other, uh, Israel found itself, that's supposed to be a football field, uh, on the 50-yard line, uh, line of the battle uh, between, uh, is, uh, between uh, Syria and Egypt. Uh, that's Israel, right? Square in the middle of it, that northern little piece uh, of that purple territory there. And so uh, for 200 years, uh, Israel changed hands, just like uh, football teams change possession of the ball. And in Daniel 9.26, where it says, there will be war, desolations are determined, uh, Daniel 11 is part of that future prophecy. There is war, and there are desolations determined. So uh, the prophecy uh, that we see in Daniel 11 is part of that prediction. And Daniel saw this vision uh, in the beginning of chapter 10, and he understood what it meant, the text tells us. Uh, it meant that there would not be lasting peace for Israel. There was going to be uh, endless strife. And so the angel came only to clarify the details of what uh, Daniel already knew from the vision he had seen. Now, from Daniel's perspective, it's 536 B.C., and so the entire ch uh, vision in chapter 11 is future to Daniel. Uh, Persia was the reigning empire at uh, Daniel's time in 580, or 536 BC, uh, having just conquered Babylon only a few years earlier. And Daniel himself impressed Darius the Mede, uh, the, the uh, ruler in the land, uh, so he advanced far, uh, very high up in uh, his cabinet. And Daniel was about 85 years old when he saw this vision in 536 going forward of what would happen with the future kingdoms of the world. Now, from our perspective, uh, verses 2 through 35 are all in the past. They're all history. They've all happened uh, in time, in precise detail, just as Daniel predicted, uh, as we'll see today. 
Now, verses 36 through 45, uh, those verses are still yet future from our perspective. They concern Daniel's 70th week, the end times, the coming Antichrist, and Jesus' conquest of uh, the Antichrist who is coming, uh, and Jesus' ultimate uh, setting up of his millennial kingdom uh, in the age to come. And, and we'll look at that the next time uh, we are back in Daniel. So this week, there are a ton of historical facts uh, in the book of Daniel, verses 2 through 35, uh, that are fulfilled uh, exactly and precisely. And it is not my goal to bore you with a bunch of historical facts, uh, but actually to, to prove to you uh, the historical accuracy of Scripture in such incredible detail uh, that we would learn to trust God uh, and learn to trust the Bible and know that since God is such an accurate predictor of what we've already seen happen in the past, we know that the things that he has predicted for the future all will come to pass. I also want you to remember that Daniel 10, what we were in last week, uh, that was all about the spiritual warfare that's happening in the heavens, right? As we saw the angels doing battle with each other for 21 days before this angel could come to Daniel's uh, aid. Well, chapter 11 is all about how spiritual warfare is played out in the physical realm, uh, how the spiritual warfare affects us. Uh, and so as it was in Daniel's day, uh, with the angel uh, doing battle uh, with, with, uh, with the other angel, uh, trying to uh, stop the angel from coming to Daniel's aid, uh, that manifests itself in a physical world. And as it was in Daniel's day, so it is today. Uh, there is a spiritual battle going on in the world today, and it's manifesting itself in what we see in the world today. And so I want us to see those couple things. And the other thing I want us to see is that uh, humanity has always been intensely ambitious uh, self-seeking, right? Sinful, uh, always after its own greatest good, uh, and also always rebellious against God. But even in humanity's rebellion, uh, what we learn is that God sovereignly uses his creatures, his sinful creatures, to do his bidding, to do his will, to accomplish his goals and achieve his purposes. And as I think about that, uh, Psalm 2 comes to mind for me. Uh, why are the nations restless and the peoples plotting in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let's tear their shackles apart and throw their ropes away from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And so we learn that the peoples can plot in vain. They can make all the schemes and plans they want. But God is sovereign. He has a plan, and he will accomplish it, sometimes even through uh, his sinful, evil people. And though the people of uh, the world rebel against God, one day every single knee will bow to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Daniel 11 lays out the events about how this is going to happen uh, that end with Jesus' second coming. So before we get to the wars between the Seleucids on one hand and the, and the Ptolemies on the other hand, uh, the angel prophesied about the future of Persia and the future of Greece, and those are verses 2 through 4. Uh, so starting with Persia, uh, this is what the angel says to Daniel. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. Okay, there will be four more kings. 
So there were four more kings who followed Cyrus. There are actually more than four kings that followed Cyrus, uh, but the angel's focus is on the fourth king. And that's the last of the yellow lines up there. Uh, so historically, uh, the four kings are uh, Cyrus first. The next four kings are Cambyses, and then Pseudosmeris, and then Darius Hystaspus, and then Xerxes. Uh, so Xerxes is the, is the king that, that, uh, that, that the angel is trying to get Daniel to, to focus on. And, and Xerxes, we know. Uh, we, we've, we've, uh, we know of him from the book of Esther. Uh, he's called King Ahasuerus uh, in the book of, of uh, Esther. And so uh, King Xerxes fulfilled the prophecy of Daniel that he will gain greater riches, and yet he will uh, be an, an antagonist against the whole realm of Greece uh, in 480 BC, he launched a military campaign against Greece, uh, which was disastrous, in fact, uh, even though he had acquired great wealth before then. Uh, and it would be one of the reasons why Greece, under Alexander the Great, would make war uh, in return against Persia. Uh, so verse 3 has been fulfilled historically uh, in these four kings ending in Xerxes. Uh, verse 3 begins a prophecy about Alexander the Great, who is going to be the one who conquers uh, this, this kingdom of Persia. So verse 3 and 4, A mighty king will arise, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. But as soon as he is arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out to the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants, nor according to his authority, which he wielded for his sovereignty, will be uprooted and given to others besides him. So verse 3 describes the reign quickly of Alexander the Great, uh, who arose and began his conquest of Persia in 334 BC and then finally conquered it uh, in 331 BC. Uh, and in the vision of the ram and the goat that we looked at in Daniel 8, uh, you'll remember that Greece is the goat and Alexander the Great was the horn on top of the goat's head. Uh, now, Persia uh, was the ram, uh, and the, the goat attacked the ram with great anger because of these wars that I was talking about a minute ago, uh, where Xerxes attacked, Persia, uh, attacked Greece, now Greece is attacking Persia. And so Alexander uh, conquered them, and he had a, a, a massive appetite for it. He wanted all the land he could get. In fact, when his father died, he wept because there were no more kingdoms to conquer. Not for his father, but because there were no more kingdoms uh, to conquer. And so this is the kind of man uh, that Alexander was. His appetite for everything in life was legendary, and he did whatever he pleased, just as uh, verse 3 says. But at the height of his power, he died. Uh, and verse 4 describes what happens to the kingdom after he died. The horn was broken off, and four, kings, uh, four horns arose from uh, that one horn. Uh, and so Alexander had two sons, but they were both murdered, and so neither one of them were around to take the throne. And so this, this, uh, this empire of his got divided up among four of his generals. And the generals were uh, Seleucus, this is the bottom row there if you can read that, Seleucus, Lysamachus, Cassander, and Ptolemy. Uh, Alexander's empire never had the strength that it had after it had been divided. All right, so that's the vision of Persia and Greece. Now, verses 5 through 20 describe the various battles that happened between the kings of the north, that's the Seleucids, and the kings of the south, that's the Ptolemies. And Israel, remember, is right in the middle of these two kingdoms. And so uh, that's verses 5 to 20. Then verses 21 to 35 uh, describe Antiochus Epiphanes' reign of terror against Israel. Uh, so now would be the time to take out this chart that uh, we have in your bulletin, and we're going to be following along with the chart uh, and trying to track what is going on uh, in these verses. 
All right, so let's talk about the wars between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. Then the king of the south will grow strong, along with one of his princes who will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion, and his dominion or his domain will be a great dominion indeed. All right, so just take a look at verse 5 on your chart. Uh, This prophecy, just by the way, is, of course, about the Gentile nation's effect on Israel. So uh, the the kings of the north and the kings of the south and the kings of the south are from Israel's perspective. So the kings of the north, that's Syria, that's north of Israel. The kings of the south are Egypt, that's south from Israel's perspective. So uh, verse five describes this first ruler uh, of Egypt, uh, Ptolemy the first Soter, uh, who proclaimed himself to be king over Egypt. Now in the north there was King Seleucus the first Nicator. Now, he was a lesser general uh, than Ptolemy was in Alexander's army, and yet he gained ascendancy over him. Uh, he, he gained the northern regions that would become Syria later on. Uh, before these later generations of Seleucids and Ptolemies went to war against each other, uh, Ptolemy helped Seleucus when another one of Alexander the Great's generals by the name of Antigonus made war against uh, Syria, trying to claim the throne for himself. So Ptolemy helped Seleucus, uh, and, and so uh, that is how uh, Seleucus maintained the throne. Uh, but Seleucus gained ascendancy because he gained a whole lot more territory than Ptolemy ever had. Uh, so that's verse 5, the king of the south growing strong, the king of the north growing stronger. Now, verse 6, after some years, they will form an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement, but she will not retain her position of power, nor will he remain with his power, but she will be given up along with those who brought her in and the one who sired her as well as he who supported her in those times. All right, let's look at verse 6 now on your chart. After Ptolemy I died, uh, his son Ptolemy II, Philadelphus, took over in Egypt. Meanwhile, in Syria, Seleucus I was assassinated, and his son Antiochus I took over in Syria. Everybody is named Seleucus or Antiochus in Greece, unfortunately, so it makes it very hard to follow. It's either Seleucus or Antiochus. Uh, So... Daniel does not refer to Antiochus I's reign in his prophecy, so I left him off the chart. Uh, But when Antiochus I died, Antiochus II, Theos, uh, took the throne. And so Antiochus II uh, from Syria and and, uh, Ptolemy II were bitter rivals, uh, but they decided to make a peace arrangement between them. And so to do that, uh, Ptolemy's daughter, Berenice, married Antiochus II personally. So so, but what happened was that Ptolemy made Antiochus divorce his first wife, Laodice, in order to marry his daughter, Berenice. So now Antiochus has, has divorced his wife, Laodice, married Berenice, and all would be great, right? But not so fast, because when Ptolemy II died, Antiochus II said, you know what, I'm going to take back my wife, who I really kind of liked, Laodice, and I'm going to bring her back into the fold. Well, that all sounds great, except that Laodice was a woman scorned. And so she killed Antiochus, her husband, who, who sent her away and then brought her back, and killed Berenice, and killed the child that they had together between them. Uh, and so, uh, oh, 
what happens, right? Uh, Berenice was not able to retain her position of power because she was killed, uh, and nor did Antiochus because he was killed. Uh, and so uh, those who brought uh, Berenice uh, in uh, did not survive, and murder will do that, right? This is like a soap opera uh, that we see in these, in these battles that go back and forth. Uh, so that takes us to verses 7 through 9. Uh, but one of the descendants of her line, that's Berenice's line, will arise in his place, and he will come against their army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he will deal with them and display great strength. Also their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold he will take into captivity to Egypt, and he on his part will refrain from attacking the king of the north for some years. Then the latter will enter the realm of the king of the south, but will return to his own land." All right, verses 7 to 9 now on your chart. Ptolemy III, Euagertes, was Berenice's brother, so one of her line. Uh, and he invaded the north and conquered Syria, and then he killed Laodice, uh, taking revenge and taking much plunder uh, with him back to Egypt. Now, apparently Seleucus II, Callinicus, uh, it attacked Ptolemy III, Eugertes, uh, but was quickly beaten back and had to retreat. But that's not recorded anywhere except in the Bible. We don't have any secular records of that. Uh, but that's what the Bible says happened. All right, verses now 10 to 13. Uh, his sons will mobilize and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one of them will keep on coming and overflow and pass through that he might wage war up to his very fortress. The king of the south will be enraged and go forth and fight with the king of the north. Then the latter will raise a great multitude, but that multitude will be given into the hand of the former. When the multitude is carried away, his heart will be lifted up, and he will cause tens of thousands to fall, yet he will not prevail. For the king of the north will again arise or raise a great, greater multitude than the former, and after an interval of some years, he will press on with a great army and much equipment." All right, verses 10 to 13 on your chart. Seleucus II had two sons. Uh, one was Seleucus III, Seranus, and the other was Antiochus III. Now, Seleucus III only reigned for about four years. Uh, when he died, Antiochus III uh, succeeded him, and his reign was nearly 50 years. Now, he did not succeed in conquering Egypt, but during his reign, he secured the territory of Israel, of Palestine, uh, at, during uh, Ptolemy IV Philopater's reign in Egypt. Now, until that time, Egypt had mostly owned uh, Israel or occupied Israel. Uh, but Antiochus chased Egypt out of Israel, and thereby he earned the nickname the Great. So Antiochus III is also called Antiochus the Great. But in the next couple of years, Ptolemy IV regrouped, raised an army, and took back Palestine. But then Ptolemy IV died, leaving the kingdom to Ptolemy V, who was a five-year-old boy, and Antiochus recognized this opportunity. He invaded and took Israel back again. And so back and forth and back and forth they go, uh, being dominated by either Syria or by uh, Egypt. Uh, all right, so now into verse 14. Now, in those times, many will rise up against the king of the south. The violent ones among your people will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they will fall down. Then the king of the north will come, cast a siege ramp, and capture a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south will not stand their ground, not even their choicest troops, for there will be no strength to make a stand. But he who comes against him will do as he pleases, and no one will be able to withstand him. He will also stay in the beautiful land for a time with destruction in his hand. 
All right, verses 14 to 16 on your chart. Uh, Philip V of Macedon, uh, that's over in Greece, uh, this is about 200 BC. Philip V was king. Uh, he's not on your chart because he's not either a Seleucid or a Ptolemy. Uh, but he and, and the Jews thought that uh, if they helped uh, Antiochus in Syria, that would be better for them than helping Ptolemy uh, in the south. And so that's what they did. They made an alliance and they did that. And the well-fortified city that's being spoken about in verse 15 is Sidon, uh, which is a northwestern coastal city, uh, northwest of Israel, uh, in Syrian territory. And so uh, it's being held by Egypt, but Antiochus laid siege to it, built up siege ramps, and captured this well-fortified city, defeating this man, uh, an Egyptian general named General Scopus. Uh, That happened in 198 B.C., And he withstood three attempts. The Egyptians tried very hard to liberate uh, Sidon from the Syrian uh, rule, uh, but they all failed. And so they were able to withstand uh, Egypt. And then the beautiful land, uh, Israel, is now in the hands of the Seleucids. So for an entire century, we've been talking about from about 300 B.C. to 200 B.C., uh, Israel is the 50-yard line on this battlefield uh, between Syria and Egypt. And Israel changed hands often, depending on who happened to win the last battle. Uh, But from here on, though, uh, the Seleucids pretty much dominate Israel going forward. And so what follows here uh, from verse 35 on is, is a series of Seleucid kings who controlled and dominated Israel. But a new empire, Rome, was on the rise. And that is going on uh, while, uh, while the Seleucid Empire is dominating Israel. So let's look at verses 17 to 20. He will set his face to come with the power of his whole kingdom, bringing with him a proposal of peace which he will put into effect. He will also give him the daughter of women to ruin it, but she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. Then he will turn his face to the coastlands and capture many, but a commander will put a stop to his scorn against him. Moreover, he will repay him for his scorn. So he will turn his face toward the fortresses of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and be found no more. Then in his place one will arise who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom, yet within a few days he will be shattered, though not in anger or in battle. All right, verse 17 on your chart. The Syrians, under Antiochus III, forced peace terms on Egypt. Uh, And to seal the agreement, Antiochus gave his daughter Cleopatra to Ptolemy V, who was just a young boy, uh, in marriage. Now, this is not the Cleopatra of Mark Antony and the movies with Elizabeth Taylor. That's Cleopatra VII. That's 200 years in the future or so. This is Cleopatra I. And she was actually a Seleucid. She's not Egyptian. Uh, She is Antiochus' daughter. And so her father thought that she would remain loyal to him and to the, to the Seleucid kingdom, but she did not. Uh, she supported the Egyptians. As verse 17 says, she was not on Antiochus' side. Now look at verses 18 and 19 on your chart. Antiochus III turned his attention to the lands by the Mediterranean Sea. He wanted to capture uh, Asia Minor and Greece. And the commander who stopped him in verse 18 is a Roman by the name of Claudius Scipio. 
191 BC, the Romans defeated the Seleucids at Thermopylae and forced them to withdraw. And then in 188, uh, the Romans made Antiochus sign a treaty and ordered him to surrender land, some of his military force, and to pay tribute to Rome. And so uh, that Seleucus, uh, I'm sorry, that Antiochus uh, returned to Syria and he was killed by an angry mob in 187 BC. Uh, verse 19 says he stumbled and he was found no more. So that was his end. Now look at verse 20 on your chart. Antiochus the Great's successor, this is the oppressor of verse 20, was Seleucus IV Philippator. And he imposed heavy taxes on Israel to raise the needed funds for the Syrian treasury to pay all this tribute that Rome demanded of them. But he was poisoned by a Jewish tax collector by the name of Heliodorus. And uh, at the end, as verse 20 says, Seleucus IV did not die in battle. He died by murder. All right, so what have we seen so far in verses 2 through 20? Uh, we have seen that the angel's interpretation of Daniel's vision was historically and accurately precisely fulfilled from Daniel's day in 536 B.C., all the way through about 176 BC, uh, which is the end of Seleucus IV Philippator's reign. Now, he was succeeded by Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Uh, this is the little horn that we met in Daniel chapter 8. And just to remind you a little bit about what we learned in Daniel chapter 8 about Antiochus Epiphanes, this is what Daniel 8 says. And out of them came one of them, out of, out of one of them, that's a horn, came a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. It grew up to the heavenly lights, and some of the lights, that is, some of the stars, it threw down to the earth, and it trampled them. It even exalted itself to be equal with the commander of the army, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown." So Daniel 8 prophesies about the coming of this Antiochus Epiphanes, and now verses 21 through 35 uh, give us greater detail about this man's monstrous reign. Uh, he is the little horn that grew out of the, one, uh, out of the four horns uh, from the goat of Daniel chapter 8, and he violently and mercilessly persecuted Israel during his reign from 175 to 164 B.C., and his reign also foreshadows the coming Antichrist uh, who we will meet uh, at the end of chapter 11. So let's talk about the rise of Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, just verse 21 for now. Uh, in, this, or in his place, uh, that's uh, in, in the place of his predecessor, a despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred, but he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. All right, so his predecessor is Seleucus IV Philippator. Uh, and so uh, Seleucus IV Philippator had two sons. One was called Demetrius I Soter, and he should have been made king, but he was in prison in Rome at the time. Seleucus IV also had another son. His name, of course, was Antiochus, and he was very young at the time, uh, so he was not able to be king yet. So Antiochus IV gained the kingdom by promising to be a protector uh, to the young Antiochus until he was old enough to reign. Uh, so he obtained the kingdom through um, false promises, through bribery, and through flattery, and he is the despicable person referred to in verse uh, 21, and verses 22 to 28 now describe uh, how he was, would have success against Egypt, uh, at least initially. 
So we're going to read from 22 to 27 here. The overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered, and also the prince of the covenant. After an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception, and he will go up and gain power with a small force of people. In a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest parts of the realm, and he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. He will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them, and he will devise his schemes against strongholds, but only for a time. He will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south with a large army, so the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war. But he will not stand, for schemes will be devised against him. Those who eat his choice food will destroy him, and his army will overflow, but many will fall down slain. As for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil, and they will speak lies to each other at the same table, but it will not succeed, for the end is still to come at the appointed time. All right, so Antiochus's enemies fell before him, and so did a person called the Prince of the Covenant. Now, most commentators agree that this is the high priest, uh, Onias, because the term covenant has to do with their the relationship with Jews, and not with Gentiles. And he was assassinated in 170 BC. Now, Egypt at this time was led by Ptolemy VI Philometor, who faced constant challenges from his brother, Phil, uh, Ptolemy VII, Euagertes. They were fighting with each other over who was going to inherit this kingdom. And so Antiochus saw opportunity. Uh, he's going to make deals with one, make deals with the other, uh, never intending to keep them. So he, he used the conflict. He made alliances. He broke alliances until he personally was strong enough to invade Egypt. Uh, so the king of the south, Ptolemy VI, could not stand against him. His own advisors even conspired against him. And in negotiations, uh, Ptolemy VI and Antiochus sat at the table uh, making promises to each other that neither intended to keep, and yet God is still in control. God is the one who decides how this is all going to end. So uh, after their bargaining, uh, Antiochus went home very wealthy, uh, and we see his return home in verse 28. Then he will return to his land with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant, and he will take action and then return to his own land. All right, remember, this is the angel interpreting the vision that Daniel had to Daniel to clarify everything that Daniel had seen and understood already. And so the whole point of all that we've been talking about so far and this whole vision that Daniel had seen so far is that the angel wants Daniel to come, have the background to land at this precise historical moment in time when it's Antiochus Epiphanes who is in charge and who is about to wreak havoc on Israel. And so with the sage, stage set for Antiochus's reign, this is really the point. Uh, when Antiochus IV returned uh, from Egypt, he had to go through Israel to get back to Syria. And when he did, he found Israel in rebellion against his kingdom. And so he squashed that rebellion. He killed 80,000 people, and he looted Israel's temple with the help of an evil high priest by the name of Menelaus. And Antiochus IV wasn't done. He still had greater ambitions. After he got home, he thought, I'm going to go back to Egypt, and I'm going to go get more from Egypt. And so uh, that's what he did in verses 29 uh, through 35. We'll start with the first three verses, 29 to 31. At the appointed time, he will return and come into the south, but this last time it will not turn out the way it did before, for ships of Kittim will come against him. Therefore, he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. 
forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and take away the regular sacrifice, and they will set up the abomination of desolation. All right, so Antiochus IV marched into Egypt again a second time, thinking that it was going to go just as well as the first time, but this time it did not, because a new world power, Rome, was on the rise, just as predicted by Nebuchadnezzar's dream statue and by the vision of the four beasts. Uh, the Romans had come to Egypt from ships from a place called Kittim, which is the island of Cyprus uh, out in the Mediterranean Sea, and they opposed Antiochus there. And this is what happened when they got there. The Roman commander, Papilius Lanus, gives to Antiochus a letter from the Roman Senate saying, you may not wage war against Egypt. And Antiochus said, well, will you give me some time to consider? And Papilius said, yes, I'm going to draw a circle around your feet, and by the time you leave that circle, I will need your decision. Uh, and so that was most humiliating to uh, this man, Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Uh, he had to bow down to Rome. He had to turn around and go home and submit to their demands because he couldn't defeat them. So he was humiliated. He was disheartened, the scripture says, and had to return to his own land in 167 BC going through Israel. And so like a beaten bully, he took out his frustration on Israel. Verse 30, he became enraged at the Holy Covenant. He stopped all the Jewish practices, all the sacrifice, all the worship at the temple on penalty of death. And in his worst act against the Jews, he set up a, an altar to Zeus in Israel's temple and sacrificed the uncleanest of animals, pigs, on that altar. And this is the abomination of desolation. Verse 32 to 35, by smooth words, he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many, yet they will fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity and by plunder for many days. Now when they fall, they will be granted a little help, and many will join with them in hypocrisy. Some of those who have insight will fall. And in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time, because it is still to come at the appointed time. So when Antiochus came back, he made promises to some of the apostate Jews, like the wicked high priest Menelaus, who would support his policies. Now, uh, they wanted to survive, and they were not obviously living godly lives. Uh, they were corrupt, and, and they just wanted to see what they could get out of Antiochus. Uh, so they were not living faithfully. But others were offended, and they acted, and they resisted Antiochus, and they were persecuted for their faith. I just want to spend a second here on this. Uh, the people who know their God will display their strength and take action. Uh, we've been going real fast over these verses, but just dwell on that for a second. The people who know their God will display strength and take action. That's you and me, brothers and sisters. We who know our God and see all this wickedness and all this uh, evil going on in the world and all this craziness uh, that, that is happening, uh, we who know our God, we have to take a stand. This is what God calls us to do. And we see Daniel doing this all the way throughout the book of Daniel. Uh, and I'd love to preach a whole sermon on this particular verse, and maybe I will someday. Uh, but I want us to, to just think about that for a second. What, what might you do to display strength and take action uh, when you see injustices, when you see God being slandered? Uh, what can you do uh, to display strength and take action? Okay, so Antiochus made these promises. Uh, in in uh, 166 BC, though, uh, a man named Matthias, uh, he had had enough. 
He said, I, I cannot take what's going on at this temple. He was a man who knew God and displayed strength. He took his five sons uh, into the mountains, and there they plotted what is known now as the Maccabean Revolt, which ultimately was successful in cleansing the temple under wonder Matthias' sons called Judas Maccabeus. And the Jews still celebrate that momentous event, and it's called Hanukkah, right? It's coming up. They've been celebrating that uh, since 166 BC, I believe. All right, you all worn out yet? Are you worn out yet? You can be honest with me, I know, that was a lot. Uh, but it's time to breathe. And, and so, uh, what, what do, why do we have all this here? Uh, after all that detail, uh, all those incredible fulfillments uh, of these prophecies of Daniel, uh, let's get to the point of the passage. Remember uh, that Daniel 10, uh, Daniel had seen a vision and he understood it and he prayed and he mourned and he fasted for three weeks until this angel arrived to tell him, to clarify uh, what the purpose of the revelation was. And so this revelation is from God, right? We understand that. And we also understand that, 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 that God sovereignly ordained all of this wickedness, all of this hardship, all of these wars and desolation, all on the people of Israel and for the angel to, to reveal these exact particulars to God. Uh, I'm sorry, to Daniel. Uh, so, so why? Why all of this? Why has God done this? Well, the purpose of this persecution was that even though uh, just after Daniel's time, uh, God allowed Israel to return from exile to build the temple and the city as Daniel prayed uh, in Daniel chapter 9, Israel would continue in rebellion against God. And God can use any means necessary to discipline his people, to cause repentance, to purify and to restore fellowship. And God wanted to purify his people, Israel. And he used even rebellious, sinful people like these we've been talking about today, these wicked Gentiles to do it. So God loves his people and he has a plan for them and he has a plan for the land. One day Israel will no longer fear its enemies. Uh, their enemies will not march across Israel uh, like football teams do on the gridiron. And we've seen throughout this book that Daniel, uh, the book of Daniel, that God has a future plan for the people of Israel and for the land of Israel. And so God wanted Daniel to know God's plan and to write it down for us so that 25 years later you could be looking at some uh, ridiculously detailed chart uh, to show the accurate and precise fulfillment of, of uh, Daniel's prophecy and know that God is sovereign. That is the point of this passage. So what can we learn from Daniel 11? What can we take away from it? Well, the first thing I would say is that uh, humans are sinful and God is holy. You know, ever since the fall, human beings have always tried to conquer and dominate each other. It's in our nature to try and exalt ourselves and to want to rule over others. And the pages of history are filled with bloodshed, slavery, and oppression because human nature never changes. And that continues even to this day, right? You can't even watch a half an hour of news without seeing humanity's wickedness all over the screen as we continue to strive for power and control. Well, that's the bad news. The good news is that God never changes either. He is sovereign. He is holy. And God's sovereignty means he is in control of every single thing that happens. Even the evil that he allows, he redeems for his own purposes. God's will will be done. And God's holiness means that he cannot tolerate sin. He must punish sin. And much of what we read in the Old Testament is God disciplining Israel for its failure to obey his commands. So God is sovereign and holy. We are sinful and wicked. 
what is God to do? How is God to fix this problem? How can our holy God have a relationship with wicked, sinful people? Well, he made peace with us by sending his perfect, sinless son to die on a cross to pay for our sins. And he promises to remove the stain of sin from anyone who believes in Jesus as Savior. So God's promise to those in Christ is that they will never perish, but they will have eternal life. God will always be faithful to his covenant. Uh, the kingdoms of the world are only, only temporary, uh, but God's kingdom is the only kingdom that will last forever. Humans are sinful, God is holy, and fulfilled prophecy uh, proves that the Bible is true. How can anyone not believe the Bible after what I just read to you and described in historical detail exactly how it played out? Uh, I don't know how anybody can, can not believe the Bible, but uh, we think about it and we say, what human could possibly write this and have all of these predictions come true exactly as Daniel said? Well, I suspect the reason is that people are very prideful. Uh, and that's why they don't believe. Because uh, if the Bible is true, then the God who wrote the Bible is sovereign. And if the God who wrote it is holy and sovereign, then he demands obedience, and we must obey him and worship him. And many people don't want to worship and obey God. Now, for those of us who humble ourselves before God, studying the book of Daniel should give us enormous comfort, right? Uh, that so much prophecy has already been fulfilled, we can have assurance, we can trust that the remainder of God's prophecy will be fulfilled in his perfect timing. As we've said throughout this book, at the end of the story, Jesus wins. And because Jesus wins, we win, because we are on Jesus' side. The turning point of history has already happened. Uh, the cross of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, no matter what happens to us, we know that if we believe in him for our salvation, we will be in heaven with him. So trust the Bible and trust the God who wrote it. He has a plan for good, which he will work out in his own time. Amen? Amen. Amen. Lord God, this is a very, very difficult passage. And uh, Lord, uh, I pray that though I know uh, nobody will remember the particulars of all we talked about, that, that they will remember that you have fulfilled your prophecy perfectly, uh, accurately, precisely uh, in history, just as the angel gave this vision to Daniel. And though the details are, are murky and, and hard for us to remember, uh, Lord, the fact that, that you can do such a thing, that you can write history before it happens, uh, is an awesome thing, Lord. And I pray that uh, as we consider uh, what you have done, Lord, that we will also consider what you will do, uh, that your son is coming again, Lord, and we look forward to that great uh, day with great eagerness. Uh, Lord, we continue to pray for our brother Carl, uh, that he would be okay, uh, and Lord, uh, that this was just a minor episode, and uh, we uh, are eagerly looking forward to information about how he's doing, Lord. Uh, just lift our brother up. And we pray all these things in Christ's matchless name. Amen.